The Ukrainian History Podcast, Episode 3, Khrushchevsky the Leader. Hello, and welcome back to the Ukrainian History Podcast with your host, Ethan Newman. I'm glad you could join us. In today's episode, we will continue where we left off in the life of Mr. Mikhail Khrushchevsky at the beginning of the Russian Revolution of 1917. When we ended the last episode, Khrushchevsky was in exile in Moscow after being arrested in Kiev at the beginning of the First World War. Before we begin today, I would like to remind you that, as in the last episode, many of the events going on around Khrushchevsky are critical events in Ukrainian history and will eventually receive their own episodes. The last episode was focused more on Mr. Khrushchevsky's career as a historian, while today we will discuss the events that made Khrushchevsky famous to modern audiences. His rise to become the first president of the Ukrainian People's Republic. But how did he rise to the presidency? After all, it is difficult to exercise meaningful power from exile. Fortunately for Khrushchevsky, national events would mean his stay in exile would be relatively short by 1916. In early March of 1917, February in the old Julian calendar, the first phase of the Russian Revolution would begin in St. Petersburg with the complete ousting of the Romanov dynasty once and for all. Government would be performed by a Soviet of labor leaders and socialist politicians. Meanwhile, a competing government was also formed of a committee made of members of the Duma. This would become the White Provisional Government. Seizing on the instability in the heart of Russia, another Soviet was called in Kiev, and in competition, the Society of Ukrainian Progressives would form the Central Rada, or Council, and immediately elected Khrushchevsky president, despite the fact he was still in Moscow. Khrushchevsky was promptly telegraphed to return to Kiev, as the government that imprisoned him no longer existed. He quickly boarded a train to the Ukrainian capital. Thomas Primak recounts what happens next. During the night, a fire suddenly broke out in the sleeping car in which the professor was traveling. He barely managed to escape with his life and all of his things, including his clothes and some rare 16th century Ukrainian books that he had been carrying, were destroyed in the fire. Still, he was able to arrive in the early morning hours of March 14th. Primak also accounts that shortly after his arrival, Khrushchevsky stumbled his way to the Pedagogical Museum building, serving as the seat of the Central Rada. Dressed in little more than undergarments, a coat, and some slippers, the historian made his way into the museum and immediately stated, My name is Khrushchevsky. Is the Central Rada somewhere in here? Aside from his brush with death on the journey, Khrushchevsky's arrival in Kiev immediately pretended a revival of the revival. On March 19th, the largest Ukrainian demonstration since 1914 was held in St. Sophia Square in downtown Kiev, where an official resolution declaring the autonomy of Ukraine was drafted. At this point in time, Khrushchevsky began taking a sharp turn to the left, moving in lockstep with many of the youthful masses who desired radical land reform. The bearded historian would no longer be an apolitical culturalist. June 1917 saw the first All-Ukrainian Congress, which would formalize a Ukrainian demand to the provisional government in St. Petersburg for immediate autonomy. Alexander Kerensky, leader of the White Russian movement, would not react well to this demand and banned the convening of a second Congress. The Ukrainians were, however, 
unfortunate with the timing of the first Congress because the Russians could not bring much force to bear on them. Do not forget that the white Russian movement was still in favor of continuing war with Germany and in June 1917 was preparing a major offensive. Because the Ukrainians seemed a mere distraction to the Russians, they still were able to go through with the First Congress, where another declaration of autonomy was drafted at the Opera House in Kiev. This would force the Russians to negotiate. On June 29th, several prominent Ukrainians, including Khrushchevsky, Semyon Petlyura, and Volodymyr Vinichenko, both of whom will be discussed more in later episodes, met with representatives of the Russian provisional government in Kiev. During this meeting, the Russians agreed to recognize the Rada on the condition that the Russian government could send a general secretariat and that Ukraine would not officially declare its autonomy before a Russian assembly could be convened. However, more radical forces in Ukraine were not yet satisfied. On July 16th, a group known as the Polyupatok Regiment surrounded the Rada building, demanding they declare full Ukrainian independence. But other groups loyal to the Rada were able to disarm them. This would, however, strip the Ukrainian movement of much of their momentum as nationalistic groups would be sent to the front as to not pose a threat to the Rada. After the Polyupatok incident, Khrushchevsky would embrace his role as head of the Rada and handled it quite well. He was well known for his ability to mediate disputes on the assembly floor, but not necessarily beyond it. You see, Khrushchevsky was not quite able to listen to his advisors as to what to do about issues in the land. Despite the collapse of the Rada's military forces after the Polyubatok revolt, leaving little more than the Bodan Khmelnytsky regiment loyal to Kyiv, Khrushchevsky seemed to be more concerned with the ethics of a future established state rather than the fact that the People's Republic was in grave danger. Alexander Kerensky soon walked back on the agreed-upon compromise in terms of both the geographic extent and authority they would recognize the Rada as controlling. In response, Khrushchevsky would write some pamphlets saying he thought Russia was on the brink of collapse and send some delegates to St. Petersburg for negotiations. On top of this, he dawdled around helping draft a new constitution for a proposed constituent assembly and even started arguing for redistribution of wealth as if Ukraine wasn't divided between enough factions already. Others in the Rada recognized the threat and called the Third All-Ukrainian Military Congress to consolidate what little military forces the Rada had available. It was at this Congress where the idea of complete Ukrainian independence from Russia was seriously floated for the first time. Within the first 72 hours after the departure of Khrushchevsky's diplomats, Kyiv had become a battleground city the Bolsheviks having gained a foothold near the Marinsky Palace, a mere five kilometers from the Rada building. To add to the Rada's headaches, the white Russians also had a strong presence in downtown Cave. Did I mention that the whites had heavy artillery aimed at the Rada? In the three days between October 24th and 27th of 1917, fierce fighting would break out in Cave between the three factions. In a decision which essentially boiled down to the enemy of my enemy is my friend, the Rada would throw its force behind the Bolsheviks, frustrating white Russian attempts to conquer Kiev. But this temporary alliance would not last long. That November, during a reprieve from the fighting, the Third Universal was declared in St. Sophia Square, officially proclaiming the Ukrainian People's Republic, and a January 1918 Fourth Universal would officially proclaim independence and... Khrushchevsky would note, make all private property 
Land and banks now become property of the state. In its newly and temporarily independent form, Ukraine would send a delegation to Brest-Litovsk to negotiate the cessation of war with the German Empire. The Bolsheviks, meanwhile, decided it was their turn to take a swipe at Kiev. While Hrushevsky was busy promoting socialism and making himself domestic enemies, he was ignoring the fact that the Bolsheviks had encroached on Kiev. A lot. As in so much that Volodymyr Vinichenko was forced to declare siege in Kiev on January 27, 1918. Samuel Petlyura volunteered to fight the Bolsheviks. But remember, the Ukrainian military was fragmented at best. It would take time for Petlyura to muster any real strength. And by the time he did so, the Bolsheviks had already managed to capture the Kiev arsenal and the main post office. By the 28th of January, heavy fighting was underway in the streets of Kiev, making it so far downtown as to threaten the Rada itself. Petliora was able to organize some men and equipment, including armored cars, and was able to retake the arsenal and post office by early February. But the Bolsheviks would not give up that easily. Having beaten back the Whites the previous fall, they had encountered one key resource that would help them, the White Russian Heavy Artillery. On February 6, 1918, Mikhailo Khrushchevsky toured some soldiers around his house, showing them his private museum. Little did those soldiers know, they may have been the last ones to see the Ukrainian Library of Alexandria. Early that afternoon, Bolshevik commanders set up a heavy artillery barrage. Their target? The domicile of one Mikhailo Selkievich Khrushchevsky. The museum, all the rare artifacts, the irreplaceable works of Ukrainian literature were all destroyed in the ensuing blaze. Even worse, Khrushchevsky's mother resided at the house and was present at the time of the Bolshevik onslaught. She would perish of her wounds some days later. After the next barrage targeted the Rada building, Khrushchevsky was forced to swallow the bitter pill. He had not taken enough responsibility in preparing for this conflict, and as a result, he and Lerado would be forced to flee the day after the barrage. Khrushchevsky and what remained of his family left for Zhitomir, with the members of Lerado and loyal military forces in tow. The Bolsheviks, in turn, entered Kiev, facing no resistance on February the 8th. Ukraine, however, was not yet lost. An unexpected ally would emerge from the fog of war the German Empire. After the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, the Central Powers formally recognized the People's Republic as an independent state, and Germany was particularly willing to send assistance. Although the Germans were not very enthusiastic about fighting for the Ukrainians, they did send enough support for the Rada's forces to be able to mount an offensive to retake Kiev by that spring. Khrushchevsky appreciated the help but relations between Hrushevsky and the German advisors remained tense at best, and he would rather them leave. Tensions between the two parties would mount after Hrushevsky decided to ignore a German order for the peasants to plow their fields, in opposition with Hrushevsky's abolition of private property. The Germans took over the police and judicial system in Kiev, and Premach recounts the events of the Rada debate of April the 28th. Suddenly, a German officer and a number of armed soldiers burst into the hall. The officer marched up to Khrushchevsky, pointed their revolver at him, and shouted in broken Russian, In the name of the German command, hands up. The intruding soldiers pointed their guns, and all present except Khrushchevsky raised their hands. 
The officer read out a list of names. Those who were present stepped forward and were marched out. The others were then sent home. Khrushchevsky was still sitting in the presidential chair when the German officer standing next to him holstered his revolver and, without saying another word, walked out and left the Ukrainian leader completely alone. Suffice it to say that this is not the mark of a strong friendship. As a matter of fact, this would only be the beginning of the end for Khrushchevsky's political career. Remember how much I emphasized Khrushchevsky's desire for radical land reform? This is when it would come back to haunt him. Seeking an alternative to the radical Khrushchevsky, conservative landowners had begun plotting to take him down, and they found just the man to do it, Pavlo Skolopadsky. Descended from a line of hetmans from the Cossack era, Skolopadsky decided he would reclaim the throne of the hetmanate the day after Khrushchevsky's brush with the Germans' police. Within 24 hours, all major government posts were in the hands of the hetmanate. Khrushchevsky would briefly flee west, apparently being smuggled past German sentries by wearing a thick coat and tucking his distinctive beard into it. He would soon be forced to return to Kiev, however, as his country home would be destroyed during anti-Skorlopadsky peasant uprisings. He would reside in the ruins of his bombed-out house. A group led by Vinichenko and Petliora regained control of Ukraine, but remained mostly hostile toward Khrushchevsky, leading the historian to swing even further left, but still not enough to completely resolve tensions with the Soviets. When the Bolsheviks launched a full invasion in 1919, Khrushchevsky would again attempt a train voyage west, and again it would end in disaster when the train derailed. He would finish his trek towards Kamenets Podilsky by horse. After briefly heading a Soviet in Kamenets, he would flee again, this time to Western Europe, being present in Paris for the 1919 peace conference that would conclude the First World War. He spent the rest of the era of Ukrainian independence and the start of the communist era in Western Europe. He would mostly return to his histories and started his other epic, The History of Ukrainian Literature. He would officially retire from politics in 1922. During the events of the Polish-Soviet War, Petliura's Ukraine would ally itself with Poland against the Soviets. And this got Khrushchevsky thinking. The Soviet Union advocates for radical land reform, follows a socialist platform, and is fighting the Poles to unite Ukraine. What is so bad about them? Moscow at this time seemed to be calling for a world revolution of all peoples, rejecting imperialism. After giving it some thought, Khrushchevsky decided he would return to the now Red Kiev in 1924. At this time, the Soviet Union implemented a policy known as Kornizatsiya, which ordered official businesses in the various Soviet republics of the USSR to be done in their own language. This policy would only last for a few years, but while it did, Khrushchevsky was able to begin incredibly fruitful works, especially regarding Ukrainian literature. In fact, Khrushchevsky, having long since mastered the art of politicking, was able to receive grants from the Soviet government in Kharkiv to conduct his research. This allowed him to frequently conduct well-organized research expeditions to Moscow with many of his graduate students, uncovering previously hidden documents from the Khmelnytsky era, which was the focus of the last three volumes of the History of Ukraine Ruse. In these last volumes, Khrushchevsky would find himself drifting from his dislike of great man history. As he grew older and more in tune with the workings of the popular masses, he came to recognize that powerful movements needed a powerful figurehead, not just some ideology. America needs its Washington. England needs the crown. Even today, 
we encounter this issue in Iran. The masses have an ideology they want to advance, but there is no one individual that they can point to and say, this person represents what they want. Khrushchevsky ran into that problem. Those last volumes of his history thus attempted to back away from his prior minimization of Khmelnytsky's role and placed him in a more active position in the first Ukrainian revival. He hoped this would give the movement a hero. This being said, Khmelnytsky was far from a perfect role model. Massive pogroms occurred during the period he was most active. The same issue would plague many other potential Ukrainian national heroes. Petliura and later Bandera would all face criticism for the treatment of Ukrainian Jews. Ironically, for modern historians trying to find a national hero, many of them have converged on Khrushchevsky himself. Coming back from that little tangent, things are never easy. Khrushchevsky still has critics. Of course, in a healthy academia, debate is good and constructive. But authoritarian societies use that line of thought to justify their silencing of the intelligentsia. So, it would be in the Soviet Union. If we recall back to the last episode, Khrushchevsky's critics in the imperial era based their attacks on his delegitimization of the all-Russian scheme of history. Now that the Soviets took over, everything was class. If you didn't fit in with the party, <clears throat> excuse me, I meant the world revolution, then you were obviously not furthering anything worthwhile. During the period of Kornizatsia, these attacks were relatively weak. But as time moved on into 1928, and then especially in 1929, as Stalin rolled back local policies, Khrushchevsky began to bear the full force of communist attacks. The party would find anything they could and run with it in order to smear Khrushchevsky in thought and its opposition to Muscovite domination. A letter from 1917 during his exile where Khrushchevsky pledged allegiance to the Tsar? That must mean he's in support of imperialism. Painting a Kamelitsky in a positive light? That must mean Khrushchevsky supports putting down the proletariat by force. A speech from his 60th birthday party where he supported fighting Poland to reclaim Galicia? Obviously, he wants to bring in all the Polish capitalists to destabilize the workers' union. Khrushchevsky was forced to adapt. One will notice reading the history of Ukraine ruse that as one enters the Soviet era volumes, the amount of historical analysis by Khrushchevsky declines and more space is taken up by unedited source material. This is for a reason. The party now had to rely on his choice of sources to discredit him. It's much harder to defame someone for thoughts that aren't originally theirs. Even this would not be enough. In December 1928, the leadership elections at the Ukrainian Academy of Sciences ensured that the party assumed command. By 1930, all of his Ukrainian organizations, journals, schools, periodicals, these things he had spent his entire life working on, had been taken over by the party. On top of this, in spring of 1930, the party organized a show trial against the Union for the Liberation of Ukraine. The Soviets claimed that this union was made up of Ukrainian historians who plotted to overthrow the Ukrainian Soviet Republic via Kulak, or wealthy peasant, uprising. This trial would gut Ukrainian historiography, with many historians in the field headed to the Gulag system. In March 1931, Khrushchevsky himself was arrested during a research trip to Moscow. After being brought back to Kharkiv where he was forced to confess to various crimes, he was suddenly and without explanation, brought back to Moscow, where he was allowed to rescind his confessions and released. This trip to Kharkiv would be Khrushchevsky's last to Ukraine. Khrushchevsky would spend the rest of his life 
under party surveillance in Moscow. By now almost blind, he and his family would live in a small, unheated room which did not offer much protection from the elements. Still, Khrushchevsky continues his work, rising at four in the morning and not stopping until well into the night. Unfortunately, Khrushchevsky could not outrun fate forever. By January 1934, he was facing a new round of treason allegations. His surveillance routine was increased, and his family is put under questioning by NKVD agents. Khrushchevsky appeared to have won one last gasp of freedom in October of that year, when he was approved to take a vacation to the spa town of Kislovodsk in November. He would arrive in Kislovodsk without incident, but while there, he developed an infection that would cause swelling of his upper spinal cord and would need to be taken in for surgery. A family friend of the Khrushchevskys was a surgeon in the area, but the hospital denied having Khrushchevsky the ability to have his friend perform the surgery. Instead, the local doctor would perform it in notably unsanitary conditions. The surgery was not successful. After dictating his, to his family his wishes for his last unpublished volumes, Mikhailo Sergeyevich Khrushchevsky would die on the 24th of November, 1934, at 5 o'clock in the evening. He was 68 years old. Curiously, the party line towards Khrushchevsky would change almost immediately after his passing. He was accorded a proper state funeral, his family received state pensions, and his obituary would appear in the Moscow Pravda newspaper on the same day as the assassination of Sergei Kirov, marking the start of the Great Purge, no less. I'm not certain as to what happened to his family after his passing. His daughter Katarina was eventually sent to a gulag in the late 1930s and passed away sometime in the 1940s or 50s. His wife Maria also passed away during that time frame, but I do not believe she was arrested. Khrushchevsky's writings would remain taboo in the Soviet Union until at least the mid-1960s, when Khrushchev would begin to relax some of the strictest Stalin-era repressions. Still, for much of the Soviet era, these scholars of Ukrainian history would often have to plagiarize Khrushchevsky in order to perpetuate his thought without themselves being discredited until Gorbachev's Glasnost movement. Thomas Primock's biography would appear in the mid-1980s, introducing him to a wide English-language audience for the first time. Khrushchevsky would finally earn the recognition he deserved after the fall of the Soviet Union and the independence of Ukraine, becoming a national hero and even being placed on the 50 Hryvnia Bill. His history of Ukraine ruse has now been translated into English and his collected works are now being assembled in his native Ukrainian. This brings us to the end of our tale of Mikhailo Khrushchevsky. Undoubtedly a colossal figure in Ukrainian history, his brilliant talents as a historian provided us with seemingly unending works on the Ukrainian past on a scale perhaps unmatched to the present day. Unfortunately, he may have attempted to do too many things at once with his entry into politics, with his ineffective government dooming Ukraine to internal conflict at a time when it most needed unity. Alas, no man is perfect. His overwhelming contributions to the field, however, ensure that this will not be the last time we will encounter him. Again, I cannot understate the importance of Thomas Primox, Mikhailo Khrushchevsky, the politics of national culture, and Sergei Pelokhi's Unmaking Imperial Russia to the making of this episode. Both of them are excellent works on Mr. Khrushchevsky's life, and I highly recommend them if you would like to learn more. Join me next time when we'll begin our proper chronological look at Ukrainian history with a discussion of the first hominids to venture into modern-day Ukraine during the Paleolithic era. 
If you would like to help the effort to send medical supplies to people who need it in Ukraine, please consider donating to the Ukrainian History Podcast Patreon page if you would like a small cut to go towards the podcast, or you can donate to Razum for Ukraine directly. Thank you very much for tuning in, and as always, Slava Ukraini!